You're listening to the Volleyball by Design podcast. Today, we have a special guest, one of the greatest volleyball minds when it comes to player development. And we have him on the pod today, and we're going to talk about player development from an inexperienced player all the way to the next level, as well as seasonal planning. You know, seasonal planning is a big topic right now in um, in our league. It's September, and seasonal planning is, is such an important part of our game. So it's an episode you don't want to miss. Hi, I'm Coach Brian Singh, and after 11 years coaching competitive volleyball and as a head coach of a college team, I've become obsessed with helping athletes and coaches improve their knowledge and skills of the game by teaching them how to train efficiently and effectively to ultimately reach their volleyball goals. I've created the Volleyball by Design podcast to give you simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies so you can get clarity and apply what you learn right away. This is the Volleyball by Design podcast. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to episode 66 of the Volleyball by Design podcast. How is everyone doing out there today? Another Monday, another week in the volleyball world. And like I mentioned last week, we are in September. And September is all about player development. It's all about seasonal planning. It's all about hitting that reset button for a lot of teams and just, you know, diving in, excited for the season. I know COVID has had a toll on a lot of us coaches out there and we are ready to get back into the swing of things. So I'm excited for my, um, for my friends in the U.S., COVID has been unfortunate for you guys, but it hasn't slowed you guys down. You guys have still been competing and, and, uh, and having your season. So you're, you're in the lucky end. Us in Canada and other parts of the world had our seasons completely canceled. But nevertheless, this is an opportunity for us to sit back, plan, get, get excited about our season, and, um, and, and try to do some damage this season, I think. So I have a special guest on the pod today that is going to help us do that. And this is a personal mentor of mine. Um, he actually got me into the club volleyball scene. So when I was coaching in high school, uh, I, I mean, I, I was coaching high school. This was years ago. I might have, I can't want to say 10, 13, 10 years ago or a little over 10 years ago, something like that. I'm old. And we were, I was, I was, I was at work one day and I get a call from, from this guy and he's like, you are, are you interested in coaching club? I don't know, maybe like, what is this, what does this club volleyball entail? And then before you know it, uh, he became a mentor for me when I was a young coach coming up in the, in the, in the club ranks a little bit. And, um, and it was exciting. And there is a handful of people that I know when, when, when someone comes to me and says player development, you know, how, how do I get better at player development? And I, I think about people that I've spoken to in the world. There's about, you know, three or four individuals that I can think of are, are top, top when it comes to uh, player development. And this coach is one of them. So this is a former university coach at Trent, Chris Wilding. Chris, what's up, man? Hey, how's it going? Well, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, for those listeners, I'm going to let you talk about yourself in a second. But for, for the listeners, again, when it comes to player development, Chris has had Chris. So Chris used to coach in Scarborough when, when I was in there. Now, for those who don't know Scarborough, Scarborough is a predominantly like you know, very hockey and basketball centric uh, volleyball on the men's side on the boys side is, is not, is not there yet on the girl side. It's there, but on the boys side is really, really lacking. We're really, and they were really trying to you know grow the sport. And Chris would take these athletes from all different backgrounds and sports backgrounds or whatever race culture, whatever you want to call it and create one of the most defensive teams I've ever seen. And I've seen these guys, like his kids sometimes were like all under six feet tall and they would go up against like teams that are two years older than them, you know, well over six feet and 
going with them the entire match, just defending, defending, and and playing unbelievable matches and j- literally shocking the league. So I'm excited to bring Chris on. He's going to talk about player development as well as seasonal planning. So I, if I was you guys, I would definitely take some notes. Um, if you're driving, don't do that. Focus on the road. But if not, re-listen to this episode and get some notes and you know stuff like that. So Chris, thanks so much, man. I hope I appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Um, you know, let's let's talk about you. What uh, let's uh, share your story. How'd you get into coaching and kind of talk about your coaching journey up to this point? No, for sure. I think I got in like the same way most people do. You you, you kind of fall into one bucket or another. Either you're a former player and you just fell in love with the sport. Um, you're a relative of somebody and you kind of get roped into it or you see that there's no coach. Um, you're a school coach, grade school, high school, um, like elementary or high school, and you kind of just go into it because no one else is available um, or, or you just love being around sport. You're one of those people. I kind of fell into the like two of those categories. I love being around sport. I myself did not grow up as, uh, as a volleyball person. And so that's important to note for people too. If you started very much like I did and volleyball was not your primary sport, um, I know a lot of the top coaches in the world that have backgrounds in other sports, um, became a student of the game, learned it. Um, second reason I got into it, like many other people, um, I had a relative that that fell in love with the sport. I was a sport guy, but not a volleyball guy. And so just figured, hey, I may not know what I need to know, but I know I can help. Um, from there, it was just learn, 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 be a sponge surround yourself with some of the best coaches out there learn from them don't be afraid to ask questions learn more um put your ego in check learn more um i I honestly like that's how i pretty much came up through the ranks was um you can take some really bad coaches and still learn some very very strong and powerful messages you know that would be great if i changed it slightly or that would be great in this context or even some of those lessons, hey, they're they're doing things that I just simply don't want to do, which are also equally as valuable. But uh, rose up through that, started working with our high performance programs, um, regional teams, provincial teams, um, worked a bit on the beach side with our provincial team, worked with some of the national team players through that program. Um, and then just, you know, sort of found my way through into uh working with uh, the uh, Ontario Volleyball Association, going around teaching grassroots, then going around and mentoring coaches and growing programs and communities, um, and then worked with a couple of universities and, you know, kind of uh, found my niche in mentoring coaches and, and through developing athletes amongst all sport, but especially volleyball, so... Right. And then how did you, how did that go to you to, to becoming the head coach at Trent University? Uh, putting in your time, I would say you learn a lot, you grow a lot. Um, so for me, it was uh, putting myself out there on regional team programs and getting to know some of the coaches and learning from them, um, taking educational programs, um, putting myself out there as uh, with provincial programs and learning from them and, and growing through them. Uh, partnering with a local university, coming in and saying, hey, you know, I'm cheap labor if you want to take me on as an assistant coach. You know, I I have a background in this, albeit that it was through the the club scene and sort of the the high performance scene at our our provincial level. Uh, But certainly then 
from there, becoming an assistant coach is obviously the stepping stone to becoming a head coach within a program. Um, but, but it really was, it's, it's kind of proving your worth. And I got my certifications uh, predominantly in Canada, but also felt it valuable because I traveled through the United States uh, with different club programs to also get my certification in the States um, just because I thought it was a very valuable tool. And honestly, like it's it literally you, you pick bits and pieces from here and there you start to develop a reputation um when i i found myself in the university circuit it really was about you know they knew just as much about me as i did about them coming into the program so it, it kind of was a good fit but all started with really you know knowing what i don't know and and willing to go into these programs and learn and just learn and learn and learn so right yeah we all are a student of the game yeah that's hundred percent. I, I couldn't agree more. I'm, I'm always learning. It's unbelievable what you, what you think, you know, and then all of a sudden you something happens like, wow, okay, let's try to implement this. Yeah. So let's talk about player development. Uh, sure. I want, I want to, we're going to go from the ground up. A lot of our listeners are club coaches. Um, yeah. a lot of them have been coaching players who either are not at that level yet, or, or they're stuck and they need to get them to that level. So let's pretend we have a, a complete new athlete to the game, new athlete to the game coming in our gym, young kid. Uh, how, how would you begin to develop a plan or how would you begin to train this particular athlete to develop into what, you know, they could be? Yeah. I mean, if, if you come in as a brand new, you know, it's, it's kind of those, do you possess the athletic ABCs, right? Agility, balance, and coordination. Um, in the absence of those, you're really talking about training athletic skills long before you're training sports specific skills. So, um, as an athlete that comes into the gym, um, you know, th that's what I'm looking at first. Uh, the hardest thing I think for any younger coach to get their mind around is that the athlete they are today at 12 years old, 11 years old, 10 years old is not the athlete they're going to be at 16, 17 and 18. So we all have this natural tendency to take the person that we see who is six foot at 12 years old and say, that's the person I want. And there's value in that. So I'm not discounting that. Um, but we tend to ignore that, you know, five foot two athlete that walks in the door who hasn't hit a growth spurt. And, you know, some of the, I, I recall a number of athletes at all their years through club, you know, were under six feet tall. And then all of a sudden university, they hit this growth spurt in a six, three, six, four, but I didn't know that when I was developing them. So getting past height, I would say is part one for me. Um, the other stumbling block for, I, I think some younger coaches is coachability. Um, we tend to look at athletes for what they are and not what they can be. And so in the door, they may push back because they've had a different coach that taught them something different. And sometimes it's on us to put our ego in check and say, Hey, you know, are they going to take away from my program or are they just somebody who I may not be as compatible with right now? But the beauty of coaching is you shape and mold more than just athletics. And so um, if I'm taking that brand new person in the door, um, it, it's a volume game for me. It really is like, I'm going to not discount as many as my program can possibly sustain. So, uh, at the earliest grassroots level, your house leagues, things like that, they have more value than you would ever realize because what they show me as a person who often is working with those grassroots programs is, you know, is the person engaged? Does the person seem to love it? Even if they're not good at it, do they have a passion for it? 
because our, our job as coaches is we can teach them just about anything with enough time, um, with enough skill set as coaches. Uh, we can get them to where they want to be, but we can't teach them to be passionate and we can't teach them to want to love it and we can't teach them um, to be engaged. And if, if we can get those people um, at 9, 10, 11, 12, regardless of height, regardless of, I, I hate using the word attitude, but like that, that attitude that sometimes kids put on yep. um, and just see them for what they could potentially be. Um, hey, that's the start. You know, checking our ego at the door, I think is the start. From there, it, it, like I say, the, the assessments, the agility, balance and coordination just equate to time. It's nothing more. So if I am willing to invest in somebody who's not overly coordinated, I can get them there. Um, so I, I've coached from grassroots through high performance, um, post-secondary high performance programs through our province. Um, and one thing that I have learned is even those late bloomers, you take people who are at, about to age out of the club scene, you'd be shocked how many of them are just so dedicated and they come in the door and you're thinking, what am I going to do with this person? And at the end of the year, they're, they're one of your top talents. So like I say, my best advice, you know, in answer to your question, don't discount people in the door, which is one of the biggest rookie mistakes, I think. And the best way I can help somebody is to give them a shot. Okay. So I love that. So I like this. I've never heard of this before. ABC, agility, balance, coordination. So that's, that's fantastic. So you, so you're, you're assessing two things. They come in the door. Do they have ABC? Are they coachable? Do they have that passion to grow the game? Yep. Now let's say check mark, check mark. They have the athleticism. So we, we can kind of go past the athleticism. If they didn't have it, yep. we'd have to train it and coach it. Obviously let's say they're, they're athletic enough where we can start maybe developing some skills. How do we approach that? Uh, skill development is, there's a zillion metrics out there. If you connect with your local sport associations, um, they're likely going to have those metrics in place. They're going to say, hey, at this level, a person may be at an acquisition stage of this particular skill, meaning that it's going to be ugly. And again, this is where we got to put our egos in check as coaches and accept the fact that when they're first learning, it's going to be ugly. That's part one. Um, part two we have a tendency to overteach, And one of the, the biggest challenges, um, again, you know, I'm a strong uh, advocate of learning from other coaches around you, but we have this tendency to walk into their gym and then try and copy what they do. And the challenge is we don't have their athletes. They could be the same age. They could be the same level program wise, but they're not the same athletes. So it's taking the lessons that you learn from those programs and adopting them to the athletes that you serve. So if I'm taking that brand new athlete and let's say I'm working the skill of passing, um, I'm going to teach it. I'm going to demonstrate this skill in perfect. Now, again, I myself was not a former volleyball player, but you better believe I know a, a whole series of people who were and if I can't demonstrate that skill in perfect, I'm going to bring in that example to help me demonstrate that skill in perfect. Then I'm going to let them loose. I'm going to give them one or two, maybe three, but no more than three, probably one or two points that I want them to focus on. And I'm going to let them go. The hardest thing is, uh, as I was saying, when I started, you know, we want to overcoach. So let's say I'm talking to them about the position of their thumbs um, I want them pointed at the floor because I know if they point their thumbs towards the floor when they're forming their hands, then it rotates their arms out. It helps uh, promote a better platform. 
But then as I'm walking around and I'm trying to help out these athletes, I notice their footwork is off or I notice their body position. But as a coach, I can't overteach. So I need to focus. I need to put those into perspective. And, you know, I see some of the best coaches out there walking around with a notebook, right? What they're using that notebook for is not to sit there and make notes about, oh, this is the, the person who's going to be my, my starting passer in this rotation. They're making notes about saying, ah, oh, man, you know what I'm noticing today is that footwork is really off and I need to focus on that on a future drill. But I don't want to teach it there because that's not my focal point there. If it's a big issue and it's systemic and there's a whole thing, um, we all know as coaches, you know, it's sort of the plan of life. You go in with where you want to be starting at A, ending at B. And sometimes we need to deviate along that path on our way to get to our end goal. So sometimes there's going to be big enough things that cause you to stop. But on the whole, uh, I want to focus on those things and then make note of those things that I might have missed. Or maybe I jumped ahead or maybe there's one or two particular athletes that need my attention more than somebody else in an area away from what we're teaching. And then let volume do the rest. Um, and it's hard. And I promise everybody who's listening to this, it is hard. You're going to sit back. You're going to know what you want to see. You're going to want them to be perfect. And you need to check your patience, um, understanding that, you know, it's going to take a lot of repetitions to get from where they are today to where you want them to be. And that may not even happen over the course of your season. And for some skills, depending on what the skill is and at what age group, they may never achieve a higher proficiency of that skill within the context of what you're teaching. So that entire season may go by and they're not a perfect passer. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going, I love statistics. I, I, I really do. I use it in the right ways though. So I'm going to evaluate the quality of a person's pass. I'm going to say, you know, when everybody started, their passing is awful, right? And by awful, I mean, they go to form their platform. They're doing the things that I'm asking of them, but the ball's kind of just spraying all over the gym. Well, for me as a coach, fantastic. You're doing what I'm asking you to do. The results will come. And that's hard for a lot of people because results, you know, we're, we're in performance sport results rule the world, right? But I need them to have confidence that they're doing the right things, that I'm asking them to do the right things, because I don't want them going out there and thinking that they can't perform a skill. Um, anyone who's coached long enough understands that confidence, man, you want to be able to be competitive in any sport, confidence is it. So even if your performance is bad, you got to be confident in what you do, right? So I evaluate. And I'm looking, did the ball spray all over the gym? I may give that a pass quality zero. Did the ball go up nowhere near the setter, somewhere near the back of the court? The setter had to book it to get out there and was just able to get the ball up in the air in hopes that someone else could get the ball over the net. Pass quality one. Did it go in the area of the setter, but really they don't have all setting options available to them? I might give that a pass quality three. Was this that perfect pass that if you had the right setter at the right um, level, they could utilize all their setting options, I might give that a pass quality for. So how I use that as a tool is not to prove that one person's a better passer than the other. It's to prove that they're improving. If they start at a pass quality zero, 0 0.1, 0 0.2, I'll, I'll use a sample size of maybe 10, 15 passes under either competition type environments or um, 
game-like settings in my drill. Evaluate the quality of those passes, right? Um, then I'm going to take that and compare it a week later, two weeks later, three weeks later. Am I making progress? Because that says a lot about me, about my coaching, the drills that I'm running. Because if their pass quality is not improving, um, I, ha I have to understand that's more about me than it is about the athlete. Because even if they're a bad passer and they're not that coordinated, they should have improved at least somewhat. So maybe I need to come at it from a different angle. Doesn't make me a bad coach. It makes me a good coach for identifying it and then choosing to do something about it. So, you know, a brand, brand new in the door. Um, I would baseline the athlete. I would say, hey, where are they at right now? And then it really is just, you know, if they're brand new, uh, you, you're talking about dumbing it down and being very patient with what you want uh, from an outcome. If I had to give two to three points to any new coach to say, if you want people to progress really quickly, I would say point number one to any new coach is, you know, plan, 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 plan. Like you got to know before you step in your gym, what it is that you want to do. Uh, one, if you don't, you're going to feel lost Two, your athletes know it. I promise you that even if you don't feel like it, your athletes know that you didn't come in prepared. Um, and it's not going to help you progress, right? I would say the second thing um, is, you know, we're, we're kind of starting to shift away from being highly technical in our sport. Um, what I mean when I say that is obviously we are a highly technical sport. Every little nuance matters. But I'm not trying to break down 20 different points to an athlete right away. Instead, I want to progress those over time. I'm going to break down the one or two things that are going to make them successful now. So if I am teaching the, the skill of passing, if I want that ball going forward, the angle of my platform is probably a lot more important um, than the angle of my shoulders necessarily right away. And, and we need to get there. Like, to be clear, we need to get there. But that may not be where I start. Um, and then the third thing is that I want to make sure that it's volume without heavy intervention from me as a coach. If I'm constantly fixing them and not letting them get their touches in, if they have to stop to listen to me nonstop, I can't expect them to get fast or sorry, get better faster. It's just, it's just not possible without getting the repetitions. So if I can go by and I can say to an athlete, Hey, how do you feel about, you know, those two points that we were talking about, um, and the athlete says to me, oh, I feel fantastic. I think that whatever, and they're doing an awful job and they're not doing what you asked of them. Uh, I'm going to ask them maybe a couple follow-up questions saying, oh, okay, so uh, do we feel that, you know, our thumbs are pointed or do we feel that this, and if the athlete's like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, here's what I need to know as a coach. That's fantastic. And I move on to the next athlete. That's a hard thing because they're not doing what I'm asking of them, right? Um but what you want is the, to develop with that same athlete the mentality that they're questioning what they're doing themselves. So I'm not constantly spoon feeding that information. I walk up to athlete number two and athlete number two says, oh, I can't get the ball to go in that direction. In my brain, I'm thinking about, okay, so what are the questions I can ask to direct them to those two points we were talking about? Okay, so if the ball's not going where you want it, what do you think might change or you could adapt so that you could make the ball go in that direction. Well, I might try doing this. That's fantastic. How about you do a few repetitions? I'm going to walk around and work with some other athletes. Is it okay if I check back with you later? Right? And then the last piece is make sure you do. 
if your athlete wants to know that you care about them and needs to know that you care about them, and I promise you they do, uh, minimum twice with every athlete and every practice. We have this tendency to gravitate towards the absolute best because then we can associate ourselves. That's an ego thing. Um, but the absolute best probably don't need as much attention from us because they're already performers. The absolute worst probably don't need as much attention from us because they need touches and they need time. That middle group, man, can you make a big impact with that middle group? So it's not that we're not going to pay as much attention, but if I'm going to talk to somebody three times, I'm talking to that middle group. I'm going to talk to that top person, that bottom person, minimum of twice, and then that. So plan, simplify what it is that you, you want to deliver. Um, use those as your singular focal points and minimum of uh, two check-ins uh, with each athlete. Uh, you're going to see progress pretty fast. Okay. So there is a lot there to unfold, a lot. Which, was, which was, will, which was great. So I, as you were, as you were talking, I was kind of typing here, making some notes just to, so just to recap. Um, so I like, I like that. So brand new athlete we're we're in the acquisition phase. So yep. we're dealing with, uh, you know, one or two cues maxed, yep. right? One or two cues max, and it's in a controlled environment. So it's controlled something that you high volume, controlled yep. high volume, right? And yep. that, and and then, what I also like too is it's simple cues, so like thumbs down, because you know if they put yep. their thumbs down, it'll open up their platform, they'll get a wider base, and they can do something with that potentially. And then, also letting them get the repetition, allowing them to make their mistakes. And what I really like is you ended it off by allowing them to critically think about their mistakes or critically think rather about the skill in general by asking them questions and seeing where they go with it, as opposed to you telling them, you know, this is the way you should be, or this is how you do it. This is what you're doing wrong. Let's have a conversation so they can figure it out on their own because down the road, that's going to be way more valuable than you just telling them, oh, you know, man. this is what it is and this is how to go. So I like that. That's, those are no. really good. And cues. quick check-in for any coach, if they're curious about that part obviously I cannot see you, but you can put up your hand mentally. If you, when your athlete makes a mistake and they turn to look at you right after making that mistake, that tells me that they're not capable of thinking critically. That tells me they lack the confidence to let them do what they do. And they're not asking their own questions. So absolutely right. Like hundred percent. Um, that's one of the huge, uh, huge pieces that I, I see personally lacking. Right. And then the other thing that you mentioned, which I preach all the time, because I'm, I love stats. I'm a metric driven coach, mm -hmm. to be honest, is, is, is the fact that you monitor metrics, because I always say this and my listeners have heard me say this a million times, you can't grow what you can't measure. Correct. So if we're not measuring, if we're not giving measurable feedback and taking that measurable feedback and noting it so we can look back week by week or month by month or whatever the case is, we will never know how the athlete is progressing. And this, I think, to be quite honest, that's a, that's a great point because I think this is a key in player development. This is how they develop faster is when they're aware and when you're aware of these numbers. So you can tweak, you can adjust, you can go back and say, hey, we're not, maybe we're not on the right path. What's going on? We can kind of go from there. No, 100%. I have a couple of things that I would do in every single practice if I have the coaching support. I have one person who's responsible for doing spot check statistics in the middle of a practice, in a practice. And you got to think about that. Um, we're not talking high performance athletes. We're talking from the youngest of all ages. Part two, I have a scoreboard in every single practice. That seems like the weirdest concept. 
but the more our our athletes are getting acclimated to the idea that the scoreboard is there it's part of our sport but i can use it for so many things i can use it to play my little games and say hey when you get that three or four quality pass you are in a point that scoreboard becomes so important but i'm statting everything and someone is there if i have an injured athlete they got a clipboard in their hand um, I am a heavy, now I don't want to confuse it. I'm not solely metric driven and I know you aren't either. Um, part of coaching is science and part of coaching is art. And the science part of it requires data, period. The art part of it is that instinct, that feel, that understanding of a situation or what buttons you can push even though the, the metrics and the data may point you in a different direction. So I, I'm glad you talked about that because yeah, Coaches all too often write it off, especially at a young age group, but we're not talking about recording stats and posting them on a wall. We're not talking about giving out trophies for the best at a particular stat category. And in my youngest age groups, they never, ever see those stats. What they do see and what they do know is that they are a better passer today than they were yesterday. And that is what I would be communicating with them. Yeah. And you know what? I love it that you said coaching is an art. Like there's the the science behind it. And then there's the art about it because yeah. And you know, what's interesting is that that's not actually taught very often. I mean, we all know coaching is an art, but the, but, but the actual art of coaching, like what you just said, what you said there, being into like understanding that feel and getting that vibe from your athletes, like being able to assess situations and be able to make the right call for those situations, when to intervene, when not to intervene. Funny enough, there, there is, that needs to be coached as well because that's a skill in itself Man, for a coach to be able to do that it's neglected it really is like and, and i'll be honest for anyone listening it comes with experience if you've been at yeah. this this is your first year your second year you know th there may be times that you make mistakes i'll tell you i've been at this a lot longer than one or two years um a lot longer i make mistakes still it happens as a coach right or our gut leads us in a direction but it was the wrong one. It's going to happen. That's part of that art part. And that's where you need to marry the science. But I'm telling you, you're 100% right, Brian. I, people learn how to position their hands. People learn how to position their foot, where their shoulders need to be, what they need to be looking at, how they need to be understanding what's happening around them. They don't learn how to feel the vibe of the game. They don't learn that when that roller coaster, um, and this is the analogy I use for young coaches all the time, when the roller coaster is going in one direction, um, we're trying to bring it back to neutral as quickly as possible, not by going in the other direction. And that's sometimes where people go, if people aren't, are on this crazy high, a coach tries to bring the team down, you're killing their vibe. But similarly, if, if your team is down, if, if they've lost three points in a row, I promise you screaming at them is not going to make it better. I promise that. That is where you need to go in the opposite direction. If you are screaming on the inside, they can never know it. The best coaches in the world in any sport generally have an even temperament or a consistent one. So if they're a high energy coach, they're always a high energy coach. They don't just bring it out to be a cheerleader or they don't just bring it out when their team is doing poorly. So, you know, the consistency and that art of how to do that um, is partnering with the right people, observing a lot. And, and like you said, you know, there's a lot. And I know, you know, Brian's doing a fantastic job 
on this this exact podcast there's a lot of expertise here and i'm telling you if you're not learning lessons along the way those are the types of things you can be picking up is that art side just as much as you can be picking up the science right yeah 100 man uh so before we move on i want to just with with the young the young age group stages um what what skill would you work on right away right? Pro- pro- like providing ABCs there and all that stuff. Would you start with passing and serving? Would you start with, well, what would you start with? How would you approach that? It depends on where you are and what your coaching philosophy is. You need to be honest with yourself. Am I a, I need to win kind of coach? And that, that's a tough place at a young age group, if I'm being honest. Um, but if you are, uh, you need to be upfront about that with yourself and be honest with yourself. Um, if you are a, I need to win type coach, winning will happen early on but may not later and and that's sometimes okay but certainly like you need to define that um but then you need to think about the skills that are going to allow you to be successful in our sport at the most youngest age um and by far that's serving and passing if your athletes at the youngest of all ages don't know how to attack um they can still be successful Uh, how many have gone into competition settings and, you know, either your team or a team you're playing against just simply cannot pass on serve receive. And you can win a game just by, by beating them off the serve. Um, however, if your team can't serve, it doesn't matter that the other team can't pass, right? So pretty simple. I, I would say the youngest of all ages serving and passing, um, but I'm also going to add a skill in there that a lot of people don't traditionally class as a skill, but I'm going to add it in there. Um, you need to teach them at the youngest of all ages to also read. Um, if if that is not in your tool belt from the youngest of all ages, you cannot have successful athletes. They're always going to be going, you know, step one to step two, step two to step three, we know our sports imperfect. So when a bad pass happens, if step two says the setter is supposed to go to, you know, that, that roughly two and a half position on the court, but the ball doesn't go there. Well, let's be honest. We're relying on them to bail out. The challenge is bail out to me means something different than bail out to probably a lot of other coaches bail out to me. Um, at a high performance level means that I'm going to pick the option that is the exact opposite of what everybody else is expecting. That's what bailout to me means. The challenge is if my athletes don't know how to read that it's about to go bad, it doesn't matter that that's what I want. So if I'm teaching the skill of passing, Part of teaching passing for me, young age right through to high performance, is identifying what the server is doing. That's part of passing to me. Uh, Sorry, off serve receive. Uh, So I'll clarify that. Passing off serve receive. I want them identifying what the server is doing. I want them um, identifying how the server is making their toss. I want them identifying what type of serve is going to come at them. I want them identifying long before that ball gets to the plane. So in other words, before that ball crosses the net, I want them to know whether it's going to go short or deep. I want them to know whether it's going to go to their left side, their right side, or right on their body. And I want them to know that from the time they're first learning how to pass. So if you think about structuring a drill for a younger age group, 
the hard part is where do you progress from just a basic pass? Well, the next logical pro progression is introducing some level of complexity, but it's not complexity like university level complexity. It's maybe they have to yell out it's going short or it's going deep. And maybe the instruction to their partner is you get to pick whether it goes short or deep. And the instruction to the passer is they have to yell it out before it breaches the plane and be in position to catch the ball waist height with arms fully extended. And they're not even live passing. And we quite often like take out this whole catch and throw as being, well, that's what little, little kids do, but it's not, it's a tool because we're trying to teach something else. Now I'm a big proponent of training reality. So I want them contacting that ball as quick as possible, but if it helps them learn in the initial phase, um, if it's a means to an animal, all for it. At the end of the day, like quick answer to your question, if you can't serve and you can't pass at the youngest of all age groups, you can't be successful. Uh, but I do want to add in the third skill that nobody ever thinks about is teaching them how to read um, from the youngest of all age groups. Um, even if it's the most basic pieces of information, if they can't do that, they could be the most skilled athlete. But if they don't know what's going on, again, it won't matter. Yeah, I know. I love it. Yeah. hundred percent serve, pass, read. I listen, I'm, I'm teaching that to my guys at the college level still to make 100%. sure that they're on point. So I, I 100% agree with that. Okay. So, uh, let's move on to the last part of player development. So we get, we got a ton of information for the developmental stages early, which I actually think applies throughout a lot of people's volleyball careers, regardless of whether you're young or 16 year or 17 and so forth. But let, let's put our, ourselves in the position of a, um, you know, a pretty decent competitive team, 16U, 17U, maybe even 18U. Um, they've gone through the acquisition phase. They understand, you know, to an extent how to pass the ball. They, the level might not be where it needs to be, but they understand the fundamentals, rather, how to create a platform, how to angle a platform, perhaps. Where do we go from there in player development? How would you approach a situation like that? The metrics kind of shifts. So again, if you reach out to local sport associations, a lot of times they do have the data that, that steers you in the right direction. Do you want them at the youngest of all levels to center around somewhere a 1.5 pass quality at 16 and under, 17 and under? Do you want them to center around somewhere around a 2.1 pass quality, 2.2 pass quality? Um, now I'm using that sort of zero to four uh, metric. There are many of them out there. There's zero to threes. So like, again, use what works best for you. Just be able to define it. Um, uh, like Brian's already said, you know, if you can't measure it, <laughs> like you're dead in the water. Right. So, but find out what a baseline looks like. Um, and, and if one doesn't exist, Hey, maybe your first season is creating one so that you have knowledge for the future. Um, but certainly, I'm benchmarking people in the door regardless of where they're at. But then I also want to know based on those metrics, and there's a ton of them out there, at 16 and under, 17 and under, where should I expect them to be, right? Are, are, am I to be starting to teach them now how to do um, a, a spike serve, uh, a spin serve, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, and if so, how consistent should they be? Should it be location? Should it be power? Should it be timing? What, what, where should they be? Right. And then I'll give you the sort of spoiler alert to that. They're not at the refining stage of that skill until they're late in, in university, late post-secondary at yep. best. Yep. So if we're expecting them to be these perfect spike spin servers, 
at 16 years old, again, if you get that standout, they are just that. They're a standout, but it's not an expectation of everyone in your gym. Um, so setting realistic expectations for those age groups. Now, to your point, if they're starting to perform, man, I, a lot of coaches out there aren't going to like what I'm going to say, but then I'm going to push them beyond their limits. And here's why. If I set the bar relatively high and they fail to meet it, is that not better than setting the bar moderate and they meet your expectations? So I, a particular threshold that I use in my gyms is to define that I want somewhere around a 70-ish percent, you know, 65, 75, somewhere in that marker percent success. But I do want that 25 to 30% failure rate with my drills. And I do on purpose, because what that tells me as a coach is if they're far exceeding that threshold, what I'm doing with them, man, it's like they've mastered it. They're past it. I need to move on. Right. Um, which again is the importance of having that, you know, if you've got, you know, we all hate to utilize parents, but you can utilize them in the right ways, right? If they're recording now those numbers, those statistics for you, and they're sitting there and they're going, Hey, wait a second, we're sitting at 90% success. Tap me on the shoulder and say, you know, we're, we're a little bit ahead of where we need to be. But similarly, because we want them to be confident. What happens if they hit 40, 50, 60% failure rate? Well, now all of a sudden I acknowledge that that drill is probably a little bit too difficult for them at this time. And there are times that that's okay. There are times where I literally will have one or two drills that I will run for an entire season and our failure rate in the beginning of the year is really high. And I do it on purpose because at the end of the year, when they finally hit those success criteria and they're peaking right before their respective uh, zone, provincial, whatever it is, the championship they're prepping for or going for a national championship or whatever, don't you want their highest point of confidence to be occurring just as they're supposed to hit that peak? So for me, it's again, assessing where they're at, but I need to know what the expectation of them is. Um, so I'm, I'm reassessing just like I would when they're a younger kid, um, sorry, younger athlete. Um, then I'm sort of developing my plan. Um, my seasonal planning, um, is really going to come in heavily, heavily at those age groups. Um, it, it plays a role at the younger age groups, but if I want, cause I'm not getting these big leaps and bound improvements anymore. I'm getting more moderate improvements. And so I really need to be focused now. And that's where a seasonal plan will help you um, to achieving very specific goals, training at that age group, especially complementary skills. So I would never train an attacker without a blocker ever. Um, because if I train and we're all guilty of this, you know, we're a rookie coach you do the ring around the rosy drill where they all come through and you toss the ball in the air and the kid hits the ball and then it's the next one up. And for those of you who think that that's a hitting drill, um, you know, what a hitting drill is defined as is that the, the athlete involved in the drill should be attacking the ball approximately one third of the time. So 33% of the time, if you have 10 kids in your, your line and they're hitting it one in 10, it's actually a drill in standing or patience or something else, but it's not a hitting drill, right? But very similarly at an older age group, if there's no blocker, it's also not a hitting drill. We're, we're talking about even at the most youngest age groups, we're teaching visual cues. At the older age group, I need to learn to hit around those blockers. And if there's never a blocker there, it may boost my confidence, 
but I can't be successful when it matters. So I, I use this language early on, but especially at this age group, um, we train in reality. So if there's an attacker, there's a blocker. If there is a um, server, there is a passer. Like, why would we waste the repetition, right? Um, uh, very similarly, if there's a pass or, uh, passers out there, what are they doing if no ball is coming to them? Are they just standing on the floor? So the, the injects are coming from a server. Um, I can teach those particular skills um, in concert. So um, I, I pair my skills when I train, especially at older age groups, um, where I'm teaching complementary skills. So I would progress at the beginning of a season, arguably, very similarly, like Brian said, you go all the way through. If you don't think that they're training heavily, serving and passing at the Olympic level, you're crazy. That is a primary staple set of skill sets they're training at all ages. So if I'm starting my season with serving and passing, maybe I'm going from serving and passing to passing and setting, and maybe I'm going from passing and setting to setting and hitting, and maybe I'm going from setting and hitting to hitting and blocking. Um, but I'm training complementary skill sets all the time. A couple things that it's going to give you an advantage for, especially at that level. One, it reduces the amount of time people are standing around. For all you coaches out there, you know one of the biggest challenges you have is keeping your athletes engaged. Well, again, I said early on, if you don't walk into that practice with a plan, if I have 10 athletes, every drill, 10 athletes are doing something. So at that age group, I want them that something to be volleyball related as much as possible. We all know there's going to be those drills where you need shaggers. And yes, I will assign shifts for shaggers because everybody has a job. Nobody stands around in my gym, period. At that age group, intensity goes up. You want to make sure you're training at a much, much higher level of intensity. I start looking at, and it's probably a little bit more advanced, but I start looking at microcycles. I start looking at ways to ramp my intensity as the week is progressing so that I'm hitting a particular level of intensity by the time it comes into competition. And I can't do that constantly by starting really low and slowly ramping up. And the last day I do this really dynamic, whatever, um, it's not going to work out too well for me. So I want to keep my intensity a lot higher than typical. Um, I also want to train in complementary skill sets. I want to evaluate those skill sets against the standards that may exist um, with your local um, uh, sport associations. And if they don't, honestly, Hey, the web is a phenomenal tool. I would not recommend Googling, but I would recommend finding the right people, making that solid connection, um, because I promise you those metrics do exist and somebody has them somewhere. Yeah, I know. That was great. That was like a great. And now, okay, so we talked about just to recap, uh, this is for, you know, advanced development or rather this is development anywhere, uh, compare it to your local association or, or compare it to some kind of metric out there. Like you said, there's lots of metrics where there, where athletes should be at a certain level. Um, I like the 75% success, 25% failure rate type of type of deal. That's pretty cool to assess, you know, where you want your drill to be, because if it's obviously if, the, if it's 90% success, then the drill is really not helping. They've mastered it. You're not really right. developing anything. So I, I like that to, to, you know, to all, to monitor that. Um, I also like that when you're training a skill, like attacking, for example, there needs to be a blocker, 
right? It's, 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 a, it's, it's more, we're training game. Like, and why would you swing when there's no blocker there in, in a real game situation? That's probably not going to happen. So I, I really do like that. And then the micro cycle is definitely interesting. You're ramping up when, when it, you need to be uh, like, or, or constantly like, you know, having those cycles where it's, you're getting to a point where it's like, okay, full on. Uh, so that's, that's, that's solid. Uh, this is for my listeners out there. There's a lot of, a lot of notes to take on this. I, I'm, I'm making a ton of notes myself and I have a ton. So I can't, I can only imagine what you guys have. Um, okay. Let's Chris, let's, we'll, we'll kind of step away from the development, but cause there's a lot, it's a lot of player development stuff. And the last you, you could talk like, every day for a month and not get there. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. No, it, it's, no, yeah. this is really good. This is really good. Um, so let's go to seasonal planning this is the big topic yes. right now in september uh and i'm just gonna ha- i'm pretty much gonna leave it, it open-ended and I, I just i want you you know what are you doing this is the you're, you're the beginning of the season so i'm assuming you're planning well before the beginning of the season starts or yeah. right up to the season uh what is your process what are you going through to seasonal plan what are you thinking about what should coaches be doing before you know prior to their season and so forth go ahead no absolutely um i think it all depends like the layer of detail is dependent solely on what level you're coaching at. So, I mean, if we're talking, I'm coaching under tens, uh, let's be honest, the levels within your seasonal plan may not be as in depth as if I'm coaching for our national team, right? Like it's just very different. However, what doesn't disappear is the need to seasonal plan. So, you know, at the youngest of all age groups, the things that are gonna have levels of impact are the things that I'm going to seasonal plan the most. So let's start by looking at what does my season look like, right? Um, If I exist in an eight month season, what part of that season is going to represent what, what we would call the general part of my season? The general part of your season is nothing but skill acquisition. It really is going to be breaking it down at its most base levels, high volume, high repetition, lower intensities, um, type of activity that's going to be happening. So I'm going to pull out a calendar and I'm going to say, hey, this is where I'm going to teach most of my skill based stuff, right? Then I need to know the second part of my phase, which is the specific part of my season. Well, in the specific part of my season, I'm going to start looking at maybe elevating basic skills into groupings of skills, um, in sequences, um, adding layers of complexity to my systems. I'm really trying now to, to step away from just, you know, let's pass 20 balls back and forth to those, those passes now have to have meaning. Um, Not that they didn't before, but the focus becomes a little bit more away from just acquiring the skill and a little bit more about using it. Um, So that's that piece. And then I'm going to move into my competition part of my, my season. Now, this is why I'm saying different levels, it's going to be different things. So I may decide if I'm coaching under 12, that I'm going to take my general part of the season. And if it's an eight month season, four months may represent, even though I'm in competition, I may still be breaking down basic skills while I'm in competition. That's possible. If I have, uh, uh, again, you coach the athletes that you have. If I have a group of athletes that are uh, a little bit more advanced, regardless of age group, um, that may vary, or I may choose to use the same duration. However, focus a little bit more on taking the the skills and adding layers of complexity to them 
because uh, as I'm sure we can all appreciate, what happens in the general phase of the season is different for under 12s as it would be for under 18s. So I'm not teaching the very basics of how to pass to an under 18. Uh, the very basics of how to pass to an under 18 is a server rocketing balls up. That's the very basics of passing at an under 18. So it's just, it's very, very different. Um, but I need to define what my season's gonna look like. Then I need to look at what skills I wanna teach. So if I reverse engineer the math on an eight, eight month season and I coach two days a week, two days a week over eight months, then I remove all holidays. I remove times where I don't have the gym for whatever reason. Um, you know, depending on the age group, I may choose to remove the exam periods, um, like uh, different things for different age groups, depending. It, there's not many hours. So let's all be honest. There's a thousand things we want to teach. And the best way I can suggest it and the way it was taught to me many, many years ago is if you went through the exercise of writing down all a thousand things, and then you were to say out of those thousand things, you know, let's cross off the ones that wouldn't make us immediately successful today. Your list is going to shorten pretty quick. Then out of that remaining list, if I started crossing off the things that I just simply do not have the time to train over the number of hours that I have, my list gets exceptionally shorter again. And then I, I take that and I say, realistically, with where I'm at today, what are those skills that I can expect out of this very short list to advance over the course of the number of hours I have? You may find yourself with five or six different skills that you're teaching over the course of a season. And you started with a thousand. It's crazy, right? But understanding, like our heads are all filled with this knowledge and it's dangerous sometimes when we go watch other coaches, especially higher level coaches, and then try and replicate it in our gyms, they simply may not be ready for it yet. So when I'm doing my seasonal planning, I'm going to take those skills and I'm going to start trying to break them down on a calendar. If I'm working, let's say two days a week for eight months, less my holidays, less my everything, um, maybe my first two weeks, maybe I practice on Tuesdays and Thursdays, both my Tuesday and Thursday are going to be passing practices. And that's my focal point. But I want to put that on a calendar. Because when I go to do my practice plan, all I have to do is pull out my seasonal plan and say, oh, today's about uh, passing. And so I can write an entire practice plan about passing, right? Um, so that is pretty easy. The other pieces that you would always want to layer onto a calendar is those cycles that are going to cause abnormal behavior. So if a holiday exists, what are your expectations of your, your athletes? And it's, you know, that's up to you as a coach. Some people give homework, so to speak. Some people give them the day off, but you might want to have that on a calendar. Um, is there going to be time? So for those of you who celebrate particular holidays and they have significant importance to you, as those holidays are approaching, the younger the, the age group, but let's not discount the older age groups as well, their excitability may be a lot higher, but their ability to control, their ability to produce outcomes is going to reduce. So where we live, um, uh, Christmas is a big holiday that is celebrated here. What I know about practices uh, gearing up to that point I can't be overly technical leading into those because I've lost them before they walk in the door. And if I want to be realistic as a coach, I can say to myself that, but they have to learn to push through it. 
And to a degree, they will. But if I really want them learning that skill, I'm going to teach it at a time that's away from that. So I'm going to look at my calendar and I'm going to mark out those times where I'm like, maybe I need to lighten the intensity in practice, or maybe I need to um, change how I'm going to deliver practice that day. I'm going to mark out. Um, so, so again, we're still talking at the youngest of all age groups. So I'm going to write down my skills on a calendar. I'm going to write down holidays on a calendar. I'm going to write down things that might have impacts on a calendar. And I'm going to write down my competitions. And I can't stress that enough. My competitions go on every single calendar. And then I'm going to take that calendar and be realistic with both myself and my athletes. And I'm going to say, hey, you know, I'm going up against the best team in the league on this day, and I find myself to be a moderate level team. If the stars align, I, I can tell you anyone who's been in sport long enough knows the stars align, you can beat anybody. That's simple, right? So I'm not saying you don't go for it. But on the calendar that the, the athletes don't see, that's probably one of those competitions that I'm going to say is a green competition. And I use colors. It's a green competition for me. It's sort of, it gives me an opportunity to maybe experiment a little bit more with systems. I might want to consider getting athletes that don't have as much playing time into those competitions. Um, you know, it, it's it, competition experience is huge. So, but, but I have that on my seasonal plan. And so I know leading into that competition, Hey, maybe I want to plan out my rotations a little bit different, or maybe I want to. And then I have those red competitions, those must win. I need to know those. I need to know those. So I plan out personally as a club coach um, in two major cycles throughout the season. I want to peak twice. I want to peak at my third tournament for me personally out of four possible tournaments. Um, I play in more than that, but of my own age division, I want to peak in my third tournament. We're, we're winning that tournament. That's my goal as a coach. We're winning it, right? And I want to peak at my championships for obvious reasons. And so what do I need to do? So I need to sacrifice early on maybe. And that's why I was saying your general may overlap some of your competition. I need to sacrifice early on so that I can win when it matters. Um, so I, I've got my green competitions. I've got my yellow competitions. I've got my red. As a post-secondary coach, it doesn't necessarily follow a linear path, um, which it may in clubs. So in club, you may sacrifice the early part of your season you may not, um, but at a post-secondary level, I pretty much know team by team who my opponents are. I know what to expect from them. As a high-performance coach, I'm tearing apart videos, so I really know more about them than they may even know about themselves. So I know how winnable that match is, even if I'm not always as honest. Um, I shouldn't say as honest, because I'm always honest with my athletes, as open about our prospects. Because I want instead our athletes going in there with a layer of confidence and saying, this is a winnable match if we do blank. And I don't want to ever put into their head that there's a possibility that we can't be competitive with any program. So it's never, hey, you know, if, if we can beat this team, um, you know, that's a major accomplishment. But if we don't, I, I don't want to put that. I don't want to put that. I want to say, hey, you know, we can compete with these guys. And this is the way in which we can do that. Um, so it's important for me to identify those competitions on my seasonal plan as well. So as a, at the youngest age groups, that's probably as much as I would be putting in. I'd be layering out the skills on a calendar, the phases within my season. Um, I would be layering out times when I don't have the gyms. I'd be layering out holidays or particular events that may cause them to be more excitable or pay less attention. 
Um, and I would be marking down my competitions um, so that I can understand uh, what that looks like. Very, very quick note, every, um, I shouldn't say every, that, sorry, that's a gross over-exaggeration. There are a number of long-term athlete development models that exist out there with various uh, volleyball organizations. Um, they're going to give you the ratios practice to competition. So they're going to let you know you train arguably 70% of the time to compete 30, or you're going to train 60 to compete 40. Um, those are really, really helpful when planning out your season, um, because all of us like to go into these extra competitions, but understanding extra competitions equal extra training. Um, it, it, it's not just a one in favor of the other, or let's just do more because they'll get better faster. Um, studies have actually shown that that's not the case. So the, the ratios exist by people much smarter than me, um, who have studied it for a period of time and understand what that sort of practice to competition. So as I'm planning out my season, um, that's another piece when I'm planning out my competitions is what those ratios might look like so that I know I'm going into five tournaments based on the number of training uh, hours that I do, or I'm going into four, I'm going into eight or whatever that may look like. Yeah, I know. That's, that's great stuff. So basically seasonal planning is, is you in a calendar yes. and you in a calendar. And then, you know, you have your skill acquisition portion, you, you map out your skills, you narrow it down to where you want certain skills based on the season and what you're yep. focusing on and stuff like that, which, which, which it makes sense. And that also helps with your practice planning, like you mentioned. So we have, you know, you, you put on your competition dates, you put on your, uh, your skill acquisition or skill phases and that you can practice plan according to that. Um, and then I, I do like the comp. I, I forgot about the competition ratio. That's actually a good point. Uh, and there's a lot of studies out there that will have, you know, based on this yeah. amount of competition, this is the practice ratio according to that. And that's, that's not only more so that's to prevent injury. That's also to keep athletes ready to go and, and to maximize yeah. your performance as well. So it's two, it's injury prevention and, and, big one and, performance. and, and yep. maximizing performance. So I like that. Um, would it like real quick, would it, what would change at the post-secondary or maybe 18U, 70, the higher level? Would anything else be added into well, that at the higher course. level? Yeah, I mean, at so part that I left off, and, and it's probably going to kick in pretty early on, um, what is also appearing, at least for me, because I have a little bit more experience with planning, and for those of you who are looking to get into being a coach and you're in this because you want to make your athletes better, you're going to start training in different categories. You're going to have physical training, which means different things to different age categories. You're going to have those cognitive mental skill trainings that mean different things to different age categories. Uh, you're going to have your sports specific training, which means different things to different athletes um, at different levels. I, so I, personally, I do that at all levels. I want to know what I'm teaching, but especially at the higher levels, um, we were talking before about those metrics. Um, I'm looking at when they're acquiring a skill versus when they're stabilizing the skill versus when they're refining the skills. And I'm planning that out on my seasonal plan because I've looked at the metrics and I'm saying, I accept that by the end of the season, they should be in the, let's call it the um, refined stage of a particular skill and in the door, they're, they're not as low as acquisition. They're not just learning the skill, 
um, but they certainly have not refined it. So I'm going to plan out my different markers throughout the season. And again, I use color coding for that quite a bit, um, where I'm going to say that they're going to be at a level two uh, to start the season. And in my system, a three is the highest level. So they're going to be at a level two to start the season. But maybe five months into it, they're going to be at that level three. And that's my expectation. And that keeps me in check as a coach, because now I can go back to that same data and I can say, where are they at? Do I need to alter my plans? How are we? How are they progressing? Um, it keeps the checks and balance. It keeps me honest as a coach. Am I doing right by my athletes? Um, so I'm going to plan those out. I work with uh, my strength and conditioning um, coaches pretty hand in hand. Um, and we have certain metrics that they have to be able to attain by certain age groups. And I don't want to give you those metrics because I don't want every, anyone going out there and all of a sudden saying, you know, I coach a 10 year old, so they should be doing this. Um, we don't want to do that. But let's say they're 75% to their goal um, by a particular point in the year. It, it lets me know that that's probably normal or, hey, they're very far behind or, hey, they're, they're way ahead. And it lets me know that I need to have more touch points with my strength and conditioning coach to say, hey, you know, what's going on? Can we alter this program? What is it that we're looking at there? Uh, so I'm looking at that. Um, I'm my grids are my seasonal plan for uh, the youngest of all age groups is probably an, an eight and a half by eleven Excel spreadsheet on size. Let's call it eleven font, right? It's it's there's not much information on it. It's it's well, there's a lot, but. To put that into perspective, my seasonal planning at a post-secondary level is multiple spreadsheets that, you know, arguably has like a size eight font on it because the layers of detail are just, and I think that's the quick answer to the question. What changes is detail. It's not the what, like I'm still planning out the same things, but the detail or the understanding or how I'm evaluating them against the expectation that too is now included really heavily in my seasonal plans. Um, for any coach who, who is very overwhelmed right now, there are so many templates out there to help you with this. Um, also speak to people within your local clubs, talk to post-secondary coaches that can maybe help you out um, or take courses on it. It's, they're offered through USAB, they're offered through Volleyball Canada, um, and they're offered at various places around the world. So um, but the moral of the story is plan. So um, lesser detail at a younger age, great, uh, very extensive detail. We plan out just about everything at the older age, um, but, but plan. Don't, don't let the, the concept of it overwhelm you or scare you from doing it um, because without the seasonal plan, you can't do a practice plan. Without a practice plan, you can't make your athletes better. Right. Yeah, man, no, absolutely. That's, that's great advice. And just listening to you talk, I'm thinking about my seasonal planning and maybe I need to go back and look at the detail that I have in there. Cause yeah, there's, there's a, there's a ton of things that, that gotta be included. So 100%. Okay. But we're, we're going to, we're going to wrap this up, but before I let you go, I got to ask you a couple more questions. Um, so let's do, let's do this one. You don't have to name three, but if you can, that's fine. What would be your top three pieces of advice for coaches out there? Newer coaches, experienced coaches or a blend of the two. Let's go blend of the two. Blend of the two. Yeah. Um, be open to learning. Um, that would be the number one piece of, of advice I would have. Um, just like everything from a science perspective, 
the way we know it to be true today is not necessarily the way we know it to be true tomorrow. Um, and so uh, don't be stuck in your ways, be open to learning. Um, so that would be piece of advice, number one. Uh, number two, uh, man, be, be involved, be engaged. And, 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 and that's such a big concept, but big uh, expectations. You're, you're a coach. Um, anybody can wear a whistle, but a coach coaches, right? If you want to be engaged, like being engaged means that you're having those touch points with your athletes. Being engaged means that you're having conversations with your peers. You know, you may be an introverted person. You may not be that kind of person, but if you don't engage and you're, you're not at that level, um, I don't want to say coaching isn't right for you, but maybe you're not ready to be a head coach, for example, or, or something of that nature. So definitely, um, you know, that, that piece. Um, and then the third one, I don't know. It's, I, I, I circle back to the first one all the time, like all the time, yep. you know, it, it's, it's learning, it's growing. Like I've been coaching a very, very long time. Um, and, and I'll tell you, I still, I'll run into a scenario that I'm confident. And I mean, I'm confident that I would say that I have an above average skill set and I can break it down. I can teach it. I can coach it. I can be successful. And then every once in a while, someone comes along and albeit that I'm highly successful, they find a way to make it that little bit more successful. Why would I not? Why would I not want to learn that? Why would I not want to jump all over that and say, you know what? If it works for you, I have to at least evaluate. I have to at least try it. And if it fails miserably because I don't understand it, Hopefully I'm smart enough to ask questions and I don't write it off right away. Yeah. But if it simply doesn't work, what have you lost? Right. Um, it, it's funny actually that you said that because the, the, the single most advice I ever, I give coaches is the best thing that ever happened to me. And that's mentorship. Mentorship yeah. significantly fast track my growth as a coach yes. versus doing it all, doing it by ourselves, taking online courses, symposiums, yeah. all that stuff is great. But having mentorship that, like just it's just fast track my growth as a coach because you can I mean, lean on you, their experience. You hit the nail on the head earlier when you talked about that whole what is not taught is the art art of coaching. You can't learn that from an online tutorial. You can't. I promise you. You can't learn that from reading it in a book. You can't learn that necessarily. Sometimes you can, but necessarily from a symposium. You have a mentor coach. You have the ability to pick their brain and say, "Why would you do that? That makes no sense." And, and, you know, even if it still doesn't make sense after they give the explanation, it gives you pause to maybe ask questions that you never thought about asking before, even if you never do it. Does that not make you a better coach right there? Because now you're questioning, wait a second, they're doing something that they believe in and I don't necessarily, but what about the way I'm doing it? Is it the right way? And you would have never asked that if you never had a mentor coach. Yep. So I, man, you, like you hit it right there. Yeah, I, I would. The last piece of advice that I would have for any any coach at any level, coach the athletes you have, and and it's a huge mistake not only at the rookie level but at all levels from from being a rookie coach right for, through being a professional coach. You like to take these cookie cutter templates and apply them at times to your current group because it was successful with your previous or a coach in a peer organization does this, therefore it will work for me. 
but you don't have the same athletes or the same coaching skill sets. So coach the athletes that you have. If they are just as good at attacking and that's what you're trying to emulate from the other program, and I'm not saying don't, let, let's call it steal. I prefer to use borrow because we always give back, hopefully if we're good coaches, just as much as we take. Um, but let's borrow that and let's implement that in a way that best suits us. But I'm never going to take that coach's drill playbook. Like you can buy these books online. I'm telling you, they give you great ideas. But if you follow them cover to cover, uh, I don't want to say you're a bad coach. I'm saying you're not going to be as successful as a coach as what you would be if you looked at it critically and said, yeah, but the athletes I have would benefit more if I challenged them in this way. So I'm going to alter that same drill, but coach the exactly. athletes you have. Yeah, hundred percent agree. Yeah. I'm not even going to add to that. That's exactly what I, hundred percent. Uh, okay. I got two more for you. Fire away. If you could now this, this, you may, you, you may have answered this already. Uh, and if you have, that's cool. But if you could go back in time, yeah. what would you tell yourself? Go back in time for you as a young coach coming up. What would you tell yourself? I think I started the same way every coach started. Um, I didn't know what I didn't know. And, and so I, if the advice I would give to myself as a coach just starting out is be more open to appreciating that I don't know what I don't know. Like, and what I mean when I say that is you may be doing something that your athletes love. You may be doing something that's easy and you may even be experiencing success doing what you're doing. It doesn't mean you're getting the highest possible performance from your athletes. It doesn't mean that it will benefit them later on. Um, and if I had engaged earlier on with more peers, other coaches, even if they're rookies themselves, but to bounce ideas back and forth, to try and start that process of mentorship at an early age, um, you know, I, I would have come a lot faster, I think, through my knowledge, and then I would have benefited the athletes that I coach more, because I simply would have been a better coach. Um, so that's probably the number one piece of advice I'd have for. Yeah, I know. I like that. Yeah, not solid. Okay, last one for you. If you could sit down and have dinner with anyone, anyone in the world, who would that be? Are we talking coach? Or are we talking anybody? Anybody? Anybody. Are we talking they have to be living or no? Oh, that's a good question. Um, let's say let's say both. Like, you give me one living and one uh, that's passed, unless the current one out of everyone would be the one living. My one that's passed is Kobe Bryant, hands down. Oh yeah. And, and and I have to say this. How on earth does a man who experiences as much as what he has experienced still have a competitive drive how is a guy who has been beaten as many times as he has still know he's going to win every single game how does that guy have that you know that mama mentality how does that come about that doesn't happen by accident that isn't something that's taught i don't think what makes him tick? And it, like, that is like, as a sport enthusiast, to me, I want to understand what makes Kobe Bryant tick. Because it, man, if I could get even a little fraction of understanding, I think it would not only make me a better coach, it would make my athletes better athletes, but I think it would make me a better human being. Like, so th that would be yeah. my number one for someone who, uh, who has passed. And then living? 
living number one you put me on the spot on this one yeah, um, I, this is always the one I, this is yeah my like i honestly like i i've put yeah, so a lot you can of leave thought it at kobe. into if it had to be that one person you can leave it at kobe that's fine i i think that's what i'm gonna leave like yeah. given time maybe i'd come up with an answer but obviously nope. if i need that time then i it's not that it's not that person, you know what I mean? Where Kobe yeah, is a quick Kobe, answer, yeah. So. Kobe's the number one guy. No, that makes sense, man. That's 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 a great answer. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, hundred percent. Kobe is is who you could learn so much from from talking to him. Like it would be unreal. All right, Chris, man. I I don't want to keep you much longer, but thanks so much. And one thing I do want to drive home to everyone is like, I mean, we talked about you know the the player development, the skill acquisition phase. We talked about you know just honestly checking your ego, the ABC, which is really cool. The agility balance coordination. Um, you know, when you're working with younger athletes, two cues, max, you know, work on repetition, heavy repetition, letting them get used to the skill, uh, letting them learn critically thinking. Don't tell them every five seconds, they're doing this wrong. You're doing this right. Whatever. Let them learn. Yeah. I like the, I, li I like the metrics. I'm a big metric guy myself. I like spot check stats, cue reading. Yeah. hundred yep. percent. I love the coaching as an art. That was um, that was fantastic. Uh, the three skills are you would focus on at, at the most, especially the beginning, is serve, pass, read. And I like the fact oh. he threw in the read there. That was really cool. And then the more uh, development or the more advanced stage, um, you kind of I, I like the fact that we're comparing where they should be too. You know, every association will have those numbers for you where they should be. I like the seventy five percent success and twenty five percent failure that, that when it comes to drill design, that was really cool. Um, if there's an attacker, use a blocker, you know, we're training skills that are game like, you know, when we can, yeah. and then the seasonal planning was, was a, a ton of details, right? We have the acquisition yes. skill phase. We have the mapping everything out on a calendar. Um, the competition ratio is another good thing uh, that I think our listeners will appreciate understanding, you know, how, based on how much competition you have, that's the amount of practice you got to, you know, go in, in accordance yeah. to that. So, so that was solid. But the number one thing that you hit that I'm going to hit again is mentorship. Yes. Mentorship, mentorship, mentorship. So I would, I would highly recommend any listeners out there. You can, you can go to your uh, local association to maybe see if they have mentorship programs. You could find out from your local, uh, from your club, if they have mentors in there. Um, and if they don't, as always, you guys know, I have a solution for you, which is uh, go to digitalvolleyballacademy.com, which is my signature mentorship membership site that you can sign up for. Uh, right now we're closed, but you can sign up for the wait list. And you could have me as a mentor uh, and access to all my stuff. So that's digitalvolleyballacademy.com and you can get registered there. Uh, Chris, thank you, my man. I appreciate it. This was a Absolutely. great, great conversation. This was solid. There's a lot of takeaways. I have a ton of notes, so I can only imagine the amount of notes our listeners are going to have. You Listeners, you're probably going to have to uh, watch this again <laughs> or, or rather listen to this again because there's a lot of info. Chris, final words? Uh, keep going. Keep going. Honestly, uh, we the world needs good coaches. There are not enough of them. Um, keep going. As, as frustrated as you're going to get people, and, and you will at times, um, you know, keep going. And, and as Brian has already pointed out numerous times, those mentors are going to allow you to be successful and they're going to allow you to keep going. Um, but just remember, you serve an athlete population. You owe it to yourself to enjoy your experience as much as possible, which means being the best coach as possible and your athletes will benefit from that too. So uh, absolutely, um, Bri, thank you very, very much uh, for having me here. And 
yeah happy coaching no problem man yeah you're gonna have thousands of people listen to this episode which is great which by the way i appreciate all the listeners um we are just approaching the ten thousand listener a month it's unreal last in when we first started this podcast we were at a couple hundred listeners a month and now we are approaching the ten thousand listeners a month mark and um, i don't know from our listeners out there but uh, because of you guys, uh, this podcast has been rated the number one podcast for volleyball in North America number of times um, over the last couple of months. It's us and uh, the art of uh, coaching volleyball by Gold Medal Square, which is a great podcast as well. But I appreciate all my listeners. You got a great one for you today. I uh, hope you guys got some value and you can apply it right away in your gym. And I will see you guys next week on another episode of the Volleyball by Design podcast. Take care. All right. Cue the music. Look. Are you at the stage you want to be in your volleyball journey? How would it feel to get clarity on your training? And instead of taking months to get better, you could improve in weeks, if not days. When I was a young coach and player, I felt this way all the time. The truth is, after I got some great advice on how to be efficient, my learning curve grew exponentially. Let me show you how to be more efficient and effective in this game. I invite you to check out CoachBTraining.com for more resources that you can use to take your game to the next level. I look forward to helping you reach your volleyball goals.